Now, for the next 10 weeks, really the next 11 weeks, we're going to have one week off, but we're going to be going through the Torah. Now, when I talk about the Torah, I know uh, if you're a Jew, uh, you may understand the Torah as being collectively some, as the whole book because the word means instruction. We typically think of law, but it means instruction or teaching, and we believe certainly the whole Bible is one of instruction, of one of teaching. But for our purposes here today, it's the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Bible, uh, commonly and typically regarded or known as the Torah. It's a very important book. It's where the Bible is established. It's where everything that we know is rooted and established. It's the foundation of the entire Bible. Now, uh, you'll notice we have some symbols uh, in Genesis We see that God creates the heavens and the earth, the world as we know it as well, as well as mankind. Uh, In Exodus, uh, we see Moses at the burning bush, uh, finding the covenant name of God and establishing relationship with the covenant God. Uh, We see in Leviticus, the sacrificial system is set in place. And then we see in Numbers, we see the Word of God being given to mankind and understood as the scrolls are unfolded and as the, the words begin to be recorded. And then we see in Deuteronomy, uh, the Ten Commandments. So as we go through this process, I want to encourage you to be reading through your Bible. If you've been reading through Genesis, some of this will kind of jump out uh, off the page to you as you see it. But I want you to know that the, the Torah is important. Matter of fact, it's this important. In, the, uh, in 1920, there was a movement called Progressive Christianity that began across Europe, particularly in Germany. And it did this. It removed the Old Testament entirely, and then it sought to remove uh, the, Judea- the emphasis of Judaism or any kind of connection to Judaism from Jesus, and also remove the deity of Christ and the teachings of Paul, okay? So you don't have a whole lot left at this point. It was called positive Christianity. Basically, it was called Christianity with no power and no emphasis, Christianity that could easily be manipulated. But it became popular. And soon in the early 30s, the Nazi regime would adopt it. Matter of fact, Hitler would make references to it. He would manipulate it. I don't believe Hitler was a Christian I know there are people out there that did that. Yes, he was uh, baptized as a Catholic, but he in no way was Christian if you go back and read uh, his writings after he became the Fuhrer. So, uh, but, but he did manipulate this positive Christianity, and the Nazis did use this. And again, it was a lawless, a bloodless, a non-deity uh, approach to Christianity, which meant no Christianity at all. But then in the 30s, Uh, the order came to begin to burn all the copies of the Torah in the Hebrew Bible. And they began to burn these because they knew if they removed the law from the people, because our law, our ethics, our morals are grounded, established, in the matter of fact, particularly in the Torah, that it's not much of a leap to get people to just do whatever you want once you've removed that foundation. So that's why I believe that the Old Testament is imperative. Matter of fact, you do know this is the Bible Jesus read. This is what Jesus would have studied. I know we like to think that Jesus thought, well, let me look over here in the Gospel of Luke or in John. or No, that didn't exist. This is what Jesus quoted. This is what Jesus studied. This is what Jesus spent his life learning. And the Torah, for many Jews, was the, uh, was the primary. As a matter of fact, 
uh, the Sadducees didn't even give uh, what we would call inspiration to the other writings and the prophets. It was strictly the first five books. They, they would look at them for historical information, but the Sadducees, who were the rulers and leaders during Jesus' time, uh, and they were the oldest sect of Judaism, they only thought that the inspired books of the Bible were the Torah, Matthew, excuse the Torah, the books that we see, the first five books. I almost said Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So if Jesus studied, if it's the Bible Jesus read, if it's the Bible Jesus quoted, by the way, there are over 800 references to the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament constantly goes back and quote. Why? Because it's the foundation of the faith. Okay, so with that understanding, we're going to start with Genesis today, and we're going to be going through this, and I want to challenge you to read. If you, don't, if you can't read, then listen. You can go online and listen to it. You can get the Version app. You can listen to a scripture. I, uh, last week, I think I did uh, 17 chapters uh, just having, having it on my car. So there are certain ways for you to do that that are excuse removers. I want to challenge you to do that. Now, I want you to see this little short clip uh, that kind of gives us a great understanding of the beginning of Genesis. If you would turn your attention to the script to the screen at this time. Okay. So you see this theme, you see this trend, this cyclical uh, happening that goes throughout the Bible and starts right here at the beginning of Genesis, uh, where you see Genesis is perfected. Man is given a perfect place to live. Uh, if he will choose to allow God to be God, and uh, if he will choose to uh, obey and he's given really one choice, but yet he decides in his quest to be in control, his quest to really be the God of his life. Uh, we know Adam and Eve choose the forbidden fruit, and uh, we see the fall. We see that's rebellion, and we see sin enter into the equation. And from that point forward, you need redemption. And we'll see this theme over and over throughout the, the Scripture. Uh, you'll see the rebellion. You'll see the redemption, and then the restoration, and it just repeats itself, and we'll see it. So maybe you're sitting here, though, this morning, and you're going, why is it important for me to know Genesis? Why does it matter if I know Genesis? What, what possible importance does it have to my faith today in what I believe? Well, first of all, I want to show you an outline, and then I want to just look at I was looking for just a brief spot uh, in, that we could get a, a little bit of a summary in uh, Genesis chapter 5 gives us just a little brief summary that will help us understand that. But first of all, let's understand, uh, and most of you know this, uh, kind of the flow of Genesis. We see the creation happening in Genesis 1 and 2, then the fall, 2 through 4. We see the flood, 5 through 9, the power of, Tower of Babel, 10 through 11. The covenant and call of Abraham, uh, where Abraham is given the promise, if you'll come and follow me, I will make you a mighty nation, which ultimately becomes the Jewish nation, <clears throat> and then the fall into Egypt. And so that's kind of an outline of the entire book. But let's back up for just a moment, and uh, let's look at a couple of things here. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to, to look with me at Genesis chapter 5, beginning with the first verse. Genesis chapter 5, <clears throat> the first verse, and Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 says that, and we're going to look at 29 in just a moment, but Genesis chapter one, 5, verse 1 says, this is the book of generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in his likeness, and male and female, he created them. He blessed them and named them man 
when they were created. So I think we see a couple of things right here that helps us to understand the importance of Genesis. Number one, we see our origin. What is our origin? Where did we come from? The Bible tells us that we were created by God. That's where we came from. We know in Genesis 1, 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Then we go to verse 26 and 27 of Genesis 1, and it says that he created man. So our origin is we were created by God. What is our identity? Our identity is we were created in the image of God, so we are image bearers of God. That's who we are meant to be. That's our identity. Our identity is to be a bearer of the image, a picture to the world, an image bearer of God. We were created in the likeness of God. Now we go on uh, and we see our problem in Genesis chapter 5, verse 29. And verse 29, speaking of Lamech, Noah's father, he said, he called his name Noah, Uh, which means one of peace or of rest, and out of the ground that the Lord has cursed this one shall bring us relief from our work and from our painful toil and for our hands. Remember we talked about that theme, how uh, the perfection, which later becomes the restoration, then the rebellion, and then the, uh, the need basically for redemption, the need for a Savior. So because of sin, uh, we have the problem, the struggle, because of the rebellion, we have the problem. They are suffering. That was part of the curse. As you watch the video, part of the curse is that you will now have to work the land. There, there will now be uh, problems. It will now be a great effort. Uh, there will now be sorrow and frailty. And so we see that. And uh, that's the problem is our sin. That's why we struggle because of the sin nature of Adam. Because of our sin nation, we struggle. So what do we need? We need a Savior. We need someone who can give us hope, someone who can give us restoration, someone who can bring peace to us. And you'll see this motif throughout the Bible. And that's one of the things I want to ask and hope that you will see as you study and as you read through the Bible There's two concepts, and if you've been coming to Rock Point very long, you've heard me talk about them before, but there's two concepts that I think are important for us to grasp. The first one is this. It's called foreshadowing. Now, what does foreshadowing mean? Foreshadowing means it's a glimpse of the future. It's just like a shadow. If you were walking into this room and it was uh, dimly lit and someone else was coming from the other side, and before you get there, you could see their shadow. It's not them, but it's just, uh, this is a picture about of, what, of what's come. This is kind of just a light view of what's about to come into the picture, okay? So foreshadowing, it is a shadow. That's all it is. It's not the real thing. It's a shadow of what is to come. Now, typologies, which we'll talk about here in just a moment, the Bible tells us in Hebrews that there were certain men, there were certain people that God made as types uh, that were people who would bring about restoration, people who would bring about hope and bring about redemption. And the first one that we're going to see here is Noah. That's the first one we see in the Old Testament. That's what that Bible, that's what it's talking about right there in Genesis chapter 5, verse 29. And Noah's name literally means rest. Okay, so he would be a typology, and we'll look at that in more detail at the end of the sermon. But with that understanding, uh, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about uh, the foreshadowing of this. And this is by Ray Stedman, uh, who's a pastor who's long since passed away, but was pastor of Peninsula Bible uh, back in the 1900s. 
And uh, he put this together with the names. And there's some debate if you want to debate some of the etymology of some of the names. But um, I changed one or two words just on Jewish scholarship that I, that I studied. But I, I want you to see these names that are listed here because I don't think they're coincidental. Uh, from Genesis chapter 1 through 10, obviously we see Adam, which means man. Um, we see Seth, whose name means appointed. Enosh, whose name means frail. Canaan, or Canaan, um, which means brief. And by the way, um, I want to bless some of you people uh, that, that um, send me the letters and say, you know, you spelt, spelt that name wrong. Uh, I was looking in my Bible and you spelt that name wrong. Can I just tell you, uh, these are ancient Hebrew words uh, from document that, matter of fact, in modern Hebrew, that's, that's different even today. Also, when we translate from the Hebrew, there are no vowels in the Hebrew. So we're really just kind of guessing. So that's why you can look at one book or even one Bible, and sometimes they'll have names spelled differently. Uh, so thank you. Uh, I'm glad that your King James Version spelled it that way. That's great. It's not anything to debate. You're not wrong. You're not right. Uh, if you talk to a real scholar, they'll go, yeah, we're pretty much guessing. Got no vowels. Looking at words uh, that we're not totally sure how to spell them, and we're trans- trying to translate them into English today. So when you see that, don't, don't get hung up on that. Thank you for your emails. Um, <laughs> continue. Mahala, which means praise of God. Jared, which means descent, to descend down. Enoch uh, means teaching or dedicated. Methuselah, and this one, there's, a, 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 there's controversy over the meaning of this name. Uh, but at least one of the meanings is the one that uh, Dr. Stedman chose to go with. When he dies, it shall be sent. Lamech, who's the father of Moses, or of Noah, excuse me, uh, despairing, and Noah, we know his name means rest or comfort. Now, what happens if you put all these together? And this is the order in which they came. Man appointed from frailty and brevity, the blessed God shall descend teaching. His death shall bring rest and peace to the despairing. Interesting, isn't it? So uh, many would say you, you start to see even the gospel, the story here, even in the names. So as we look at that, uh, let's look at some things that I think are extremely interesting as we talk about Christ in Genesis. You might say, well, what does this have to do with my faith? How is Jesus even related to uh, Genesis? Well, for one, we know Jesus quoted several times, certainly in uh, Matthew chapter 19, 4 and 5, he quoted Genesis regarding marriage and uh, what in sexuality. So we know Jesus used the Gen- Genesis to do that. We know Jesus believed in Genesis. Jesus uh, talks about uh, Noah. Jesus talks about uh, Abel. So he makes references to Jesus. So we know that Jesus believed this. We know that in uh, Genesis one twenty six, we see one of our first references to the Trinity. Uh, we at least believe that's what it is because it says, let us create man in our own image. There's the plural used for God here. And so we look back and that would fit nicely with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus has been on the scene forever. We believe that Jesus is God. When we say God, we're talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. That's why we see uh, that allusion in uh, Genesis 1.26. John chapter 1, uh, verse 1 through 3 says, in the beginning was the word speaking of Jesus. Okay, so we know Jesus has been around. We know if you go to Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 10 through 12, he talks about uh, the eternal perspective of Christ. Uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 18, uh, do that as well. So the New Testament affirms that Jesus has always been. And with that understanding, let's look at Genesis chapter 3, 
verses 8 through 21, Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 21, because I think this is a remarkable section. And again, if we can start to see the gospel and look for Jesus in the Old Testament writings, particularly in Genesis, I think they'll jump off the page for you. And they heard the sound of the Lord, speaking of Adam and Eve, after they've eaten of the fruit, God walking in the garden. Notice it doesn't say that they're walking with God in the garden. They, they hear the presence of God moving through the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, uh, God, among the trees of the garden. So we notice the first thing about sin is it causes them to want to hide. But the Lord God called to the man and said to them, where are you? And of course, God knew where they were. And he said, I heard the sound in the garden and I was afraid because I'm naked and I hid myself. So they're wanting to hide themselves They're aware of their nakedness, just like as we're aware of our sin, and they're seeking to hide it. This is our human nature. This is part of the sin nature. It's part of the rebellious nature that we are now wanting to hide. And the Bible says, verse 11, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said in verse 12, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And uh, there you see the first marriage problem right there. Uh, I'm sure this caused much consternation within the Adam and Eve home. Uh, Immediately points his wife, and then his wife's going to point to the serpent. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the serpent, who, by the way, is not a snake at this point, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And then this verse right here, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is known by many scholars as something called the Proto-Evangelium. Proto-Evangelium. Proto, that word means first. Evangelium, kind of like evangelism, means news, okay? The first gospel. Uh, so many scholars look at it and see the first gospel here and because there's the foreshadowing of what is to come. Now let's look at it. What does it say? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Your descendants, uh, when you talk, use the word offspring, your descendants, those who will come after you, come after you those whom will be generations beyond. There will always be an animosity. There will be an enmity between your offspring and between the offspring of Satan and he says, of the serpent. And he says, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what's he talking about there? Bruise your head and bruise your heel. Uh, If you saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ, if you'll remember in the opening scene, you see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he prepares to leave, there's a snake there. And he crushes it with his heel. I thought that was remarkable. Somebody obviously had spent some time studying to put that in there. And probably few people noticed that. But I thought back to the Proto-Evangelium. The picture here is, is that ultimately the offspring, we know that there's a child that will come from the descendants of Mary. It's prophesied in 714 that a child will come. We see it in Matthew, a child who will come. And he will ultimately... uh, what? Bruise the head of Satan. He will destroy the power of Satan, but his heel, his heel will be bruised. What does that mean? Well, he's, he is nailed upon the cross, but the cross and the grave don't keep him. He, re, he recovers from that. He comes back. 
And so Satan is defeated in that sense, but he is bruised, but he's not out of the picture. Now, if you go on, if you want to look at this later, you can look at Romans chapter 16, verse 20, and Paul talks about how Satan's head will be crushed. The head of the serpent will be crushed, ultimately. So we see that picture of the gospel. We see that sin has come on, uh, on the equation. Man has chosen to sin. There's an animosity uh, between what is evil and what is right. There's a division. There is a power. There is an adversity. And then we see as we continue on, though, that that offspring uh, will bruise the, the head of Satan, and then his heel will be bruised. And then we continue. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply it. Apply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Your desire, that word is not, man, you ought to see my husband. Do I have a desire for him? No, it it literally means you're going to want to control him. That's what it is. You're going to want to control your husband, and and he's going to want to rule over you. And he says, and to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So that's the curse. The curse of uh, leaving the garden, now having to till the ground. The curse of sin and rebellion that influences everything outside of us. All the pain, all the suffering is a direct uh, result of the rebellion and of the curse that was put on the earth and of mankind. And continuing on here. We see in verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Notice in verse 21, it says, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them and covered them. Go back to our word atonement. What does the word atonement mean? It means covering. We have to have a covering for our sin. There's a picture. You see that foreshadowing of the need for atonement, of the need of covering. And so we see that very vividly there. You continue through, the, through Genesis and you see in Genesis 4, 4, you see Abel bringing what? In order to sacrifice and to bring worship to the Lord. The firstborn lamb. We see that started in Genesis 4, 4. He brings a firstborn lamb. In Genesis 7 through 8, we see the flood. We see the way that it happened. We see what happens. God is holy and he hates sin. And sin starts to overcome the world, so there must be justice uh, before uh, they overtake themselves. God provides a way of escape uh, through Noah as he begins to preach. According to Second Peter, it appears that he preached nearly 100 years and preached a message of repentance and, and preached that the ark was going to be the way of salvation. Uh, but they did not listen to him. People did not listen. So his family uh, has provided a way of refuge and mercy. And then God saves those who put their trust in him. Uh, and then we see the water as a picture of the washing away of sin. Then we see in Genesis chapter 12, 3, we see the covenant blessing that's made with 
Abraham. God calls Abraham out and says, uh, through you, if you will obey me, and if you'll make this covenant with me, I will make a people uh, that exceed the stars in the sky. And of course, we know this is the beginning of the nation of Israel, of the Jewish people. It is established here through this covenant blessing with Abraham. And then in Genesis 14, 18, a very intriguing passage, uh, we see a, a character come on board called Melchizedek. And after uh, Abram has won a battle, he comes back and there's Melchizedek, the Bible says, Prince of Salem, which means Salem priest, Prince of Peace. And many scholars believe this to be either a typology of Christ, uh, a type of Christ, or even a Christophany. We're not sure, but it's interesting. In chapter 14, uh, verse 18, what happens? What is he set before him? What is Abraham set before Melchizedek? Well, bread and wine. This morning we took of the cup and of the bread, and then what does he offer him? He gives him tithes. He gives him a tenth of everything that he had. You see that typology. You see the gospel. You see that picture of the Christ receiving uh, the bread and the wine and the tithes. And then we see in chapter 22 of the book of Genesis, we see the sacrifice of Isaac. Now, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about the foreshadowing of Christ. God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, your good son, your obedient son, and I want you to take him up the mountain of which I will show you, which just happens to be the same mountain that Jesus would die on roughly 1,500 years later. Go up to the top of that mountain, and I want you to sacrifice your son. I want you to bind him. I want you to place him on the altar, and I want you to give him as a sacrifice. You see the foreshadowing? The difference is God says, no, you don't have to do that. The covenant has been given. There's a lamb in the thicket. Bring it over, and we'll offer that lamb as as a sacrifice. instead. So the blood offering is offered on Calvary. But the difference is that somewhere between 1,000 and 15 years later, what would happen? Well, God would send his perfect and firstborn and only son to the top of that mountain. And he would die on Calvary, and he would be bound, and he would be killed and sacrificed. And his blood would cover all who would believe and put their trust and faith in him. Because the Bible said there can be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. So Christ shed his blood. And so we do see that sacrifice being made by God Almighty on behalf of mankind. And we see it as the new covenant. You see the foreshadowing of the covenant that is to come. And then you continue and you see Genesis 37. And we see that uh, Joseph, who is a type of Christ, so to speak, he's a type of a deliverer. He's one who temporarily will bring deliverance. He's one who temporarily will bring peace and hope. Uh, he's a type, as mentioned in Hebrews, verse in chapters 37 uh, through 45. He rejected yet redeemed. Now, so what happens here? I want us to look for just a moment. I want you to put your thinking caps on and and think about this for just a moment. I'm going to put the whole. Uh, the whole book up, uh, of all these types, and there's more than this, but I'm going to put them up on the screen, and I want us to look at them, uh, and let's just walk through them one by one and see how you see a foreshadowing, you see the typology of Jesus Christ in Joseph. So let's look at that. Uh, if you know the story of Joseph, you remember how Joseph is 
uh, favored by his father. He's a good son. He's an obedient son. But his brothers become jealous. And what do they do? They seek to kill him. But instead, they end up uh, seeing a caravan come through and they sell him. So we know that Jesus was despised. And we know the story in Luke chapter 4, verse 28 through 29. He's rejected even by uh, those in his, home, in his hometown. He sold, according to Matthew chapter 26, verse 15, sold by Judah, uh, Judas, excuse me, and sold uh, for 30 pieces of silver, which, by the way, was prophesied in the Old Testament as well. Number three, he went to Egypt. We know Jesus went to Egypt uh, because Herod is seeking for him and wanting to kill him. And God, through a dream, tells Joseph to go to Egypt. That's exactly what happened to Joseph. He goes to Egypt. We see that Joseph resists temptation when Potiphar's wife comes after him and makes advances, but he resists her, just as Jesus will resist the temptations of Satan in Matthew chapter 4. We know that Jesus is falsely accused and uh, accusations are made of him that are not true. Same thing happens to Joseph. Joseph has accusations by Potiphar's wife because he would not accept her advances. He's falsely accused, so he's arrested. Same thing happens to Jesus. Jesus is arrested. Uh, But Joseph has power and authority. He rises to the top through the interpretations of dreams. He becomes second in command and given power and authority. We know Jesus has been given all power and authority, uh, but yet chooses to be there. Uh, and chooses to be our Savior and chooses to go through suffering. Jesus showed great love and compassion, and that's exactly what Joseph will do to his brothers who sold him into slavery. He's found alive when he's believed to be dead. Jesus is found to be alive. Uh, We see it on multiple occasions, but certainly here on the Emmaus Road as it's discovered that he's alive. Same thing happened with Joseph. Joseph's brothers and his father's even been told that he's dead, and his brothers think that he's dead. They come and find out that he's very much alive, and he's reunited with his brothers. Same thing happens with Jesus. He's, he's reunited three times, but one of those times is here in John chapter 19, the third time. And he saves his people, according to Matthew chapter 121. He has been given so that he might save his people from his sins. Joseph is able to save his family from the famine that is happening in Canaan. When they come to Egypt, he's able to give them food, give them a place to live. And he ultimately saves his clan, saves his people. You see the typologies? Do you think those are by coincidence? You think the power of the word of God that is uh, never changing, that is immutable, that has all authority and all power, that is the inspired word of God, you think that's by coincidence? I think not. We see the typologies. We see the foreshadowing. The question is, what do we do with it? Will we read it? Will we study it? Will we let it impact our lives? There's an old story by a pastor in the 1800s, uh, and he heard it when he was in the Mideast, called Acres of Diamonds. And it goes like this. Uh, There was a man who had a good life. He had plenty of land. He had a fairly large orchard. Uh, He had had a wife and a beautiful wife and kids, and he was well-respected in his community, and he was content. He was rich in that sense, that he had what he needed. He had more than he needed, and he was content with that. 
But then one day a friend came by and started talking to him about precious metals and about some of the diamonds that had been found in the Mideast and how with just a couple of diamonds, people had totally had their life changed. They could buy anything they want. They could get anything they want. And he began to think, well, you know, if I had a little more, it sure it would make me a little more secure. I'm secure now, but, you know, I wouldn't have to worry anything about my wife if anything happened. I wouldn't have to worry about my children. If I, if I just had a couple of those diamonds, I would have everything that I needed. And so that night he went to bed and he was no longer rich because he was no longer content. He began to think to himself, you know, I need more. I, if I just had another farm this size, if I could just double the size of my farm, I would have everything that I would ever want, everything that I would ever need. That's what I need to do. I need to make this investment. I need to go find these diamonds. So he began to think more and more about it, and he began to talk to people, and he began to hear stories, and he began to read articles, and he decided, I must go to Palestine because that's where they had found some of these diamonds. I must go to Palestine and, and find some of these diamonds. Surely if I'll put forth the effort and I will educate myself enough And if I will just search hard enough, I can find those diamonds. I can bring them back. And my family will never want for anything. We'll have all that we will ever need. And so that's exactly where he did. He went to Palestine and he began to sell pieces of his property off. And he began to sell his farm in order to finance it. And he would go to different mountains and he would would spend day after day. And he would hire more and more people to help him find those diamonds. But yet he could never find them. They, They were elusive. And he would go to the next mountain and he would dig there. And he would hire more people, but nothing. And one day he was digging with someone. He said, you know, I, I think this thing's a scam. I don't even think they're here, but I've heard there really are diamonds in Europe. I heard that in some of the rivers in France, you can go up there and there are diamonds for the taking. Let's go over there. And so that sounded good to him. He hadn't found anything, so he sold off the rest of his farm. By this time, his children and wife have not heard from him. They've decided he's not coming back, but he just thinks if I can just get the diamonds, it'll repair everything. And so he goes to Europe, but sure enough, he can't find anything. He spends everything that he has. His health fails him. He eventually dies with nothing to show for it only having lost his farm, lost everything that he had with nothing to show for chasing the mythological diamonds that would, so to, so to speak, change his life. What's interesting is back home, the man who purchased his property just a short time after the first man, Ali, died, saw something glistening in a stream just a little ways behind his house. And he goes behind that stream and when he looked over there, he, he walked in the stream, he picked it up, and it was a diamond. And he began to dig, and there were more and more diamonds. Soon he had someone come in and help him, and they found out there were acres of diamonds. That's the name of the book. The truth was that what he had searched and longed for so desperately was right in his backyard. It was at home the whole time. He had given his life in pursuit of riches that he could never find, even though he had acres of diamonds right at home. And he said, now, how does that story relate to me today? Can I tell you this? Many people are searching for truth. What is my meaning? What is my purpose? What am I to do with my life? And can I tell you, the scripture defines, it gives you your origin. It gives you your identity. It gives you your problem. And it gives you your savior. Will you begin to read the scriptures and see the gospel and see Christ even in the Old Testament? 
as you study to show yourselves approved as workmen that need not be ashamed, that rightly divide the truth. Maybe you're here this morning and you go, I don't even know that I believe Christ. I don't even know about God. Would you say, would you do, be willing to do this, take a step and say, I'm ready to place my faith in Christ, or I'm ready to learn more. I'm ready to take a step of faith toward God. I believe that he is God, and I believe that he has created a way, and I'm going to put my trust and hope in him. I want to begin that process. Maybe you're here this morning and you go, I, I, I don't know anything, and I don't even know where to start. You know what? That's why we have groups for you. We have small groups. Matter of fact, next week, right out here in the hallways, we're going to have something called Small Group Palooza. And there'll be lots of groups that are open. You can come choose which one. You can try multiple. You can take down five names, whatever you want to do. And there are groups all over this community that you can be a part of that can, can work with you and help you as you share life, as you have questions. And so I really want to challenge you to do that. Maybe you want to take a class. We have great Bible study classes. You can be a part of one of our Bible study classes. We would love for you to do that, but you've got to take a step. You've got acres of diamonds, and you probably need a little help, and we want to help you. That's why we're here. So will you take that step of faith today? Let's pray. Father, thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And Lord, I thank you that you have supplied these acres of diamonds. Lord, through a relationship with Jesus Christ, through your word, and Lord, through the body of Christ. I pray today, Lord, that those that don't know you would make the commitment to accept you as their Savior and make their commitment to you, Lord, and make you the Lord of their lives. Lord, for those who have questions and concerns, Lord, that they would uh, say, I I need to learn, I know nothing, that they would start with one of our classes. And for those who are ready to do life, to live as you intended, join a group, Lord, and let other Christians help them, uh, Lord, walk on this faith journey. Let them build relationships with believers in Christ who can help us walk and navigate these waters and and appreciate the diamonds that you have. Lord, let us not just brush over the acres of diamonds that are right before us. Let us not just stop or, 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 Lord, just move forward and not give it another thought. But, Lord, let us make the most of this moment today for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.